Let's turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. It was now two days before the Passover and a feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard of it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this wonderful, beautiful evening, following a beautiful day. I pray for my brother Matt uh, as he perseveres um, through this sermon, that you would be with him, that you would be uh, with his mouth, with his heart. That every word from his mouth would be every word you would have him say. And I pray that we would have the ears to hear. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I hope this isn't too informal for you guys. And I know it's a little weird for me uh, sitting on a stool using a microphone. But I want to make sure that you can hear me. And I have been slaughtered by allergies over the last couple days and maybe some other head funk. So um, just bear with me. Is that cool? Can we all just... We're going to focus in. We're all in this together, right? I am really excited to dive into this passage with you guys. Um, Part of what Wynn just read, Jesus says, wherever this gospel goes forth, what this woman has done is going to be told in memory of her. And isn't that amazing? 2,000 years later, the gospel has made its way to Birmingham, Alabama, And we're talking about this story, this woman's simple act. Isn't that amazing? What we do actually matters in the kingdom of God, in these acts of worship and giving. It's really, really incredible. I want to share a story with you guys before we really dive into this passage. Um, Obviously, uh, a lot of you guys know I play a lot of music. I like a lot of music. Okay. So I want to set this scene for you. How many of you guys have ever been to the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville? It's maybe the greatest place to see a show on God's green earth. And it's just a couple hour drive from here. It used to be the home of the, anybody know? Somebody said it. Somebody said it without confidence though. Say it louder. Grand Ole Opry. Thank you very, very much. Uh, The Grand Ole Opry was where you went if you wanted to hear the world's greatest country music, okay? So I'm, I'm setting the scene. It is October 2nd, 1954, all right? So everybody got their, uh, like, poodle skirts on, right? I don't remember what dudes wore, but they had, like, super thick, like, oil greasing their hair all the way to the side of their face, right? 
So you're going to the Grand Ole Opry and there's this new 19-year-old artist that is supposed to make his big debut. He performs his song, Blue Moon Over Kentucky, and it bombs. It is terrible. Everyone hates it. So much so that Jim Denny, who is the kind of like, he's the talent manager for the Grand Ole Opry, pulls him aside after this and he says, what do you do in your day job? And the young man says, well, I'm a truck driver. And he says, I think you better go back to truck driving. The young man doesn't listen. He uh, goes and tries his hand at the Memphis hi-hat where he's told that he will never make it because he has a terrible voice. And two years later, he has five number one singles and his name is Elvis Presley. Now, you may have never heard of Jim Denny, right? But Jim Denny was a big deal. Jim Denny knew music. He was very well versed in what country music was, but he came across something unexpected and he saw it. He saw something of almost unimaginable value, right? 18 number one singles, one of the greatest recording artists of all time. And he didn't recognize how precious it was. And so he dismissed it. And what happens here in Mark chapter 14 is we have this beautiful banquet feast and Mark has set this scene juxtaposing how Mary, which is the woman's name, we're going to get to that in just a second, how Mary views Jesus and how Judas views Jesus, right? So if you guys will remember um, in Mark chapter 11, Jesus has just come in on the triumphal entry. He is ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, declaring that he is the promised king of Zechariah. He is the Messiah. And a lot of these people who are waiting for the Messiah to come, they've got to be wondering, okay, Jesus, you've made this abundantly clear. Now, when are you going to get your army? When are you finally going to restore Israel? When are you going to do this? And as the week keeps going, Jesus, he goes into the temple and he kicks out the money changers. He calls out the Pharisees and, he, and the tax collector and he brings in the tax collectors. Jesus is not doing anything that they expect. Jesus, um, I'm sorry. Um, Mark doesn't go into a ton of detail about this, but what we learn in John chapter 11 is that just before this, Jesus has performed what is maybe his most incredible miracle. It's my favorite story in probably the whole New Testament. Lazarus, who is Jesus's boy, right? He dies. Jesus knew that Lazarus was sick and he decides to wait until Lazarus has died, until he goes to Bethany to see him. By the time he gets there, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Jesus says, I want you to roll away the stone. And Martha, very understandably, says, Jesus, please don't do this. Please don't do this. There's going to be a terrible stink. Like, this is really gross. This is indecent. This is, please don't bring shame upon our sorrow. And Jesus says, no, roll away the stone. And what happens? What happens? Lazarus comes out, y'all. That is insane. They've already had the funeral. People have been mourning. Like everybody knows that this guy is dead. And yet there he walks out of the tomb. And I love the way that John 11 describes it. It says like he's still got all these grave clothes on him and he's like trying to take them off. You can kind of imagine him like stumbling over the clothes as he's coming out of the tomb. 
And what happens in that scene, right? This, of course, when, when it gets out that this man, no question, had been dead, he couldn't have been faking this. When he is back from the dead, the news goes everywhere. And how do the Pharisees and the religious leaders respond? Do they send Jesus a big bouquet of flowers and a box of chocolate saying, like, we're real sorry. We've been wrong about you all along. Okay, we're ready now. No, what's crazy is, turn in your Bibles real quick to John chapter 11. I want you to see this. Starting in verse 47. Verse 47 says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Do you get that? They, they don't deny what Jesus did. They admit that he raised Lazarus from the dead. But what do they do? They say, you know what? We can't let anybody believe in him because we will lose our place. We will lose our status. We will lose our prestige. We will lose our lifestyle. And we can't have that. Verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Isn't that crazy? Caiaphas doesn't even know what he's prophesying, but we do. Let's pick back up, turn back over to Mark chapter 14, verse 1. It's now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribe were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar for the people. The Pharisees, they look at Jesus and instead of seeing someone of unimaginable value and worth, what do they see? They see an obstacle to their happiness. They see an obstacle to their way of life. Jesus is getting in the way of what I really want. Therefore, he has to die. Into verse two, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, now, John 12, which is another telling of this story, uh, we learn that this dinner took place at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's house. So scholars throughout the centuries have assumed that Simon, the former probably leper, was in fact their dad. So this is kind of like a big thank you celebration. My son was dead and now he is alive again because of Jesus. Verse three, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignant, indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. So this is like a formal dinner. 
right? And formal dinners uh, back in this day were very different than formal dinners now, right? So uh, everybody is lying on the ground, and there's kind of a very low table in the middle of them, and they've got their feet kicked out. They're, they're kind of resting on an elbow. It seems like the most uncomfortable way to eat that I can imagine, right? It's basically like you're chilling out like this, trying to stuff food down your gullet. I don't, I've never used that word before. I don't know why that just came out of me. And in the middle of this scene, just imagine the most formal dinner that you've ever been to. In busts Mary, Lazarus' sister. And what does she do? She comes in with this jar of perfume, of nard. And nard, it's this incredibly expensive perfume. It was imported most likely from India. It was valued at what we learned from John 12, 300 denarii, which is basically almost a year's wages. Let's put it at about $25,000, okay? This is most likely the most expensive, most precious thing that this family owns. And she doesn't just get down on her hands and knees and give Jesus a little bit, which would have been generous enough, right? She doesn't just hand him some. She breaks open the jar and she pours it all over him. Matthew and John tell us that she even gets down and washes his feet. Um, about Two weeks ago, I had the great privilege of going with about 20 of you guys to Haiti, and we walked uh, through some really dirty, dusty, gross stuff. At the end of every, every day, we would realize like we had definitely, everybody walked through some like dog poop or donkey poop or pig poop or something like that. We had waded through rivers that were basically open sewers, right? We get back and our feet are disgusting. I would not want anyone to touch my feet. And this is fairly close to what's going on here in, in Palestine. Like there's streets, people just throw their garbage out in the streets. Animals poop in the streets, right? They're walking around in sandals. This job, washing somebody's feet, was the grossest of gross. It was the lowest of low. It was something so shameful that Jewish people weren't even allowed to do it. And Mary, who is the host of this party, she comes down, and it's nothing to her to wash Jesus' feet. She's glad to do this for him. She doesn't even care how the other people perceive her doing this, right? She's, it's like she's not even aware of them at all. She is so in love with Jesus that she just wants, to, wants him to know how precious she thinks he is. But not only does Mary wash Jesus' feet, what does she do it with? You guys see this? I hope this is in here. <laughs> if not, it's in John chapter 12. I apologize. She washes Jesus' feet with her hair. Can you imagine that? Like the funk of all of those streets. She pours all this perfume out on Jesus. I'm imagining into the scene, right? Maybe she realizes in that moment as the perfume is pouring down him that she forgot to bring a rag or there was more of it than she thought that there would be. And she thinks, what do I do about this? And Jewish women, they almost never took down their hair. It was the cleanest part about them. It was the most valuable thing about their person. 
She unbraids her hair, which would have been a scandal in that day. And she starts wiping Jesus's feet. She considers Jesus so precious. She's so overcome with wonder and awe and love for him that the gut reaction of her heart is to take the most precious thing about her and turn it into a rag to serve her savior. Isn't that crazy? She is publicly shaming herself in the worship of this man. But then Judas, alongside the other disciples, rebukes her and considers her extravagance an absolute waste, saying that the money should have been used for the poor. And then Jesus says in verse six, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. And what Jesus is saying here is, it's very good to take care of the poor. This is a very good thing. God's heart has always been for the orphan, right? For the widow, for um, the foreigner. He's not really commenting on poverty here. He's highlighting Mary's worship. Because out of this entire scene that is a celebration for Jesus, Mary may be the only person who actually understands how precious and valuable Jesus really is in this moment. Mary and Judas, Mary and the other disciples, Mary and whoever else might have been there, they're staring at the same man, but they're valuing him completely differently. And it's really important for us to remember Judas gave up everything to follow Jesus. Judas was a disciple. Nobody at this moment besides Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. His actions look like the other disciples, right? His teaching, his theology, everything looks like everybody else, but his heart is cold towards Jesus. And Judas, he looks at Mary and he thinks that her love is over the top. He thinks that she's too showy, too extravagant, too wasteful. He thinks that she should have showed a little bit more restraint. And this is why all the way back to 2000 years ago and continuing today, the greatest enemy to sold out passion for Jesus Christ is lukewarm Christians, right? It is so hard to follow Jesus in Birmingham, Alabama, where everybody wears the name of Christian, whether or not they're valuing of Jesus and their willingness to follow him at whatever cost mirrors what the Bible calls us to or not. I remember about two years ago, uh, I used to get these emails um, about what was going on in the persecuted church around the world. And this is when ISIS was kind of in full effect. I got an email about Syrian Christians and Syrian Christians, they were being tortured for Christ. They were being, uh, they were being sought out and killed. And I remember reading this email that the Syrian Christians weren't asking that we would pray that the persecution would stop. Let me say that again. They said, please don't pray that the persecution would stop. Because as the persecution is going on, people are understanding how much we value and love Jesus, and they don't know what to do with it, and the church is growing like crazy. Pray that we would be bold and pray that the gospel would go forth. There were no lukewarm Christians in Syria, right? The Syrian Christians and Mary, to them, Jesus is worth everything. 
Whatever Jesus wants me to do, I'm going to give to him. Whether it's my most precious thing or whether it's my whole life and my family, it's his because he's worthy. Because Psalm 63 says that his steadfast love is better than life. Jesus is worshiped when the love of his followers matches the magnitude of his worth. Mary pours out a $25,000 bottle of perfume on Jesus's feet. And just hours later, Judas sells out Jesus for about $1,000. And the question lying before them and the question lying before us is, what is Jesus worth to you? Is Jesus a treasure or is he a trifle? Jesus tells this parable in the book of Matthew. It's one of his shortest parables. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. There's this, uh, I know this is really weird for me to admit, but I used to watch the Twilight Zone. Anybody watch the Twilight Zone? Of course not. I watched this episode. Have I shared this story with you guys before? All right, good. So I only have to be super weird once. I have shared this story before. Oh, no. That's true. Okay. All right, so there's this one particular Twilight Zone episode. It's on Netflix. You can go check it out. It's called A Nice Place to Visit, Season 1, 1960, aired April 15th. Right. There's this guy named Rocky, and he is robbing a pawn shop. And in the middle of robbing a pawn shop, he gets shot. Um, and he wakes up and he's in this nice hotel room and he meets this guy named Pip and he tells Rocky that he's his guide and he can give him whatever he wants. And eventually, you know, over the course of the episode, Rocky realizes that he's dead, right? And he thinks that Pip is his guardian angel. So he starts asking him for stuff like, you know, I have been unlucky my entire life. I would love to be lucky. Let's go to the casinos. And all he rolls is sevens or all he pulls is 21. Um, he makes tons and tons of money. He says, I've never, uh, I've never been able to drive nice cars. I'd like nice cars. So he gets all of these nice cars and he says, you know what? No girl has ever found me attractive. I would love to be surrounded by beautiful women and beautiful women flock by him. And at first he seems unimaginably happy. And then they do this little montage and it's the progression of month after month after month after month. And then Rocky falls into this rage. He says, I can't do this. I can't handle this anymore. I don't want this anymore. I don't belong here. I want to go to the other place. Pip looks at him and he says, where did you think you were? This is the other place. And then the narrator comes over. A scared, angry little man who never caught a break. Now he has everything he's ever wanted and he's going to have to live with it for eternity in the twilight zone. <laughs> Ravi Zacharias, who is one of my favorite guys to listen to, he says, the loneliest moment in life is when you receive that which you thought was the ultimate and it lets you down. Even uh, one of my favorite philosophers, Jean-Paul Sartre says, there comes a moment when we ask, even of Shakespeare, even of Beethoven, is this all there is? Listen, my, my wife, she is a big Taylor Swift fan. Um, 
I'm not gonna I'm not gonna comment on that or any of your woohoo's. Uh, when her album Reputation came out, um, I was subjected, and yes, I chose that word carefully, to it over and over and over again. Um, it's fine if you like Taylor Swift. I was driving in my car with my kids, and my daughter started singing along to one of these songs. Um, and she started singing, all at once, you are the one I've been waiting for. King of my heart, body, and soul. All at once, you're all I want. I'll never let you go. King of my heart, body, and soul. <laughs> and at first, I thought it was funny. And then I realized that my daughter was singing a worship song. Right? But she's not singing a worship song about God. She's singing a worship song about how everything that we could ever want could be found in a person or in a romantic relationship. And I'm not saying that that's a bad song, okay? That's not what I'm trying to say. And this you may think that I'm super weird, but in that moment, I started praying for my wife and I started praying for Taylor Swift. Because if somebody else is the king of your heart and all you want, then you're destined for one of two outcomes. Either you are going to become a coward and you're simply going to obey whatever whim the king of your heart has to keep their approval, or you are going to crush the other person with your expectations. You're going to fly into disappointment or rage when they are not who you thought they were. Because no other person, no love, no relationship can withstand the burden of being the king of your heart. They're always going to let you down. And the irony was not lost on me that that very week in church, we had sang right here, asking God to be the king of our hearts, to be the fountain that we run to, to be the one that we draw all life and joy from, that he is the one who's never going to let us down because he's good, because he's perfect, because he can't, because in his presence there is fullness of joy. And there's this great old Cademan's Call song, and I don't expect you guys to know who Cademan's Call is, but they were awesome back in the day. They had this song, and the words were this, you created nothing that gives me more pleasure than you, and you won't give me something that gives me more pleasure than you. See, the game's rigged. This is the way that God created the world. God created us so that we would find our deepest joy, our deepest satisfaction, the answer to all of our longings only in him. You see, you receive the kingdom of heaven. You receive that treasure in the field. You become a Christian when Christ becomes that precious treasure to you, when he becomes a thing worth giving absolutely everything to. And make no mistake, you will give yourself totally to something. Unless the foundation of your joy is Jesus Christ, and not one of his gifts, not beauty or attention or admiration or sex or power or wealth or control or anything else, all of these good things, then you, just like we saw the rich young ruler about a month ago, you will walk away sorrowful, but only because like Jim Denny, like Judas, you don't recognize the preciousness, the value of what's in front of you. Because nothing is worth keeping if it means that you get less of Jesus. And if you've heard me say that before, it's because I've said it before. If you feel like every sermon that I preach is exactly the same, maybe it is. (laughs) 
And the reason why I do this is because I'm, I'm, I'm so afraid. Because as soon as you walk out of these doors, you're going to hear it from every single song that you listen to. You're going to hear it from every advertisement that you see on TV. You're going to see it in every single movie or book that you read, that there is something else more precious. There's something else worth giving your life to, and it's a lie. But it's so easy to believe because from every corner of every place on earth, that is what we're hearing. This will satisfy. This will give you life. But we know that the twilight zone is right, right? If we get everything that we want, we'll only find out that it doesn't satisfy. Because as C.S. Lewis said, our desires are not too small, are not too big, but they're too small. We're like a child who's content making mud, mud pies in the slums because we don't understand what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea that we are far too easily pleased. Listen to the way that Charles Spurgeon put it in his great sermon, A Great Bargain. If you want Christ, you may have him. If you are willing to come to, term, come to the terms which God lays down, there is no reason in the world why that pearl of great cost, why that treasure should not be yours tonight. If now you have found him who is the chief among 10,000, who is altogether lovely, and you value him so that you cannot be happy without him, he will become at once your portion. The man in that parable, he sold off everything that he had so that he might have Jesus. We we have to sell off our righteousness, anything else that we might boast in. We have to sell off our worldly pleasures and say we would have Jesus. We sell off our right to choose for ourselves what is right and wrong, what we're going to do or not do, where we're going to spend our time, our money, and our energy. And we have to sell off all of our other loves. But get this. We sell off all of our other loves just like all other loves have to be forsaken for a husband to marry the love of his life, his bride. It's not a burden for a man to stand on his wedding day and say, I'm not going to marry anybody else so that I can have you. That is his greatest joy and privilege because he knows that in declaring all I want is you, he actually gets it. My friends, it's only in losing your life that you'll find it. It's only in laying down all of your treasures at Jesus's feet that you can rest assured that you will have the treasure that will never be destroyed by raw, by moth or rust. It's only in forsaking the approval of men that you can be sure and rest in the warm welcome of the Father who made you, who loves you, and who knows you inside and out. Mary knew that she was fully known and fully loved by Jesus. And therefore, she pours out her everything in surrender at Jesus' feet. In verse 3, we see that she poured it out over his head. Remember, Jesus has just come through on a donkey declaring that he is the promised king. He's the Messiah. And she's pouring this out on Jesus' head, just like Samuel anointed David as king in the midst of his brothers. And as we walked through Mark chapters 1 through 8 this fall, we, we recognized that there was this one major question that everybody was asking. Who is this guy? 
Who is this man teaching with such authority? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And then in Mark chapter 8, Peter answers that question for us. He says, Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the promised one. You are the humble king over everything. And then Jesus says that moment, he says, you're right. And this is what I have come to do. And you'll notice here, that Jesus says something very strange in verse eight. Right after Mary does this, he says, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. You see, Jesus in raising Lazarus from the dead, he knows exactly what he's doing. He is signing his own death warrant. As soon as he does this, the Pharisees decide this has to stop. We have to kill him. There's no other way about it. And Jesus knows, even as Mary anoints him as king, that his crown is going to be one made out of thorns. And then instead of a throne to sit upon, he's going to be given a cross to carry. Jesus, sitting at this dinner feast, knows that he's about to be betrayed by the same dear friend that's now questioning him, and that the rest of them, they're all going to abandon him. He knows that he's about to suffer through a gross miscarriage of justice, that he's going to be beaten mocked, spat upon. They're going to drive nails through his hands and he's going to be hung up to suffocate between thieves. And he's going to drink the very wrath of God. But praise the Lord that death cannot hold him. Amen. And Jesus willingly suffers because one of my favorite passages, and I know I've shared this with you guys before, Hebrews chapter 12, he says that it's for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That Jesus could look at the cross, and he could call it a joy because he knew that it meant that he got you. That you were his treasure that he was willing to suffer any loss that he might have you. And if that is true, if Jesus loves you like that, it's crazy. Why wouldn't we lay down anything to follow him? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we're so grateful that you love us. We are so grateful that you valued us enough that you would come and you would suffer and you would die like that, that you might have us. God, I pray that you would give us hearts um, or give us eyes to examine our own hearts, that you would search us and see if there's any offensive way in us, Lord, and if there's anything that's keeping us back from having more of you, that we would lay it down so that we might have you. Lord, if there's anybody here tonight that has Justin shared or as they heard this word that started to see just how precious you are or how deeply loved they are by you, and that they would lay down everything else and say, I surrender. Lord Jesus, have me. I'm yours. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen.